Welcome everyone to the Live from the Code Bar podcast recorded from the Code Theme Bar of Fenwood Manor. I'm your guide on this adventure, Rob. On this show, I'm going to tell you the real-life tale of a lost treasure that to this day has still not been found. This is the story about one of, if not the most hated king of England, Civil War, the Magna Carta, and a royal treasure that has been lost to time, but is still looked for today. As usual, I want to start off with some uh, housekeeping. I want to give a great big thank out, thank you to every one of you that have downloaded and listened to the podcast for so far. The first five shows have already reached over 550 downloads uh, So as of the recording, so thank you very much for that. I want to give a big shout out to the usuals, Nick Spira, Robert Brewer, and Stephen Jenner, and Dustin and Deidre Wright, who created the music, art, edited the show, and helped me promote. Um, I do also want to touch on something big that did happen over the past two weeks. Uh, last week, I didn't have a show come out because I did take my family and my kids to Disney, which was an awesome adventure. Uh, I've been putting some stuff that I found for the Code Bar up on Twitter and on Facebook, just to some signs for the the bar, as well as uh, some mugs and stuff like that that I got for the Butterbeer and stuff like that from Universal. So that was an awesome trip. But more importantly, uh, as it has to do with this podcast, I want to give a huge big shout out to two big wins that me and uh, a couple of others had on some armchair treasure hunts this week. Uh, first off, just before I left for uh, Disney, there was our big win that me and the rest of Team First Right had. It was me, Nick Spira, Ashley Ann, and Brody Leak. Uh, we won and were the first to find the proxy, uh, or know where the proxy was at least, for the Letters of St. Germain treasure hunt. Now, I did a podcast earlier about this, uh, but we worked as a four-person team. Uh, we managed to find all of the locations from all the nine clues, uh, and then very uh, quickly after that, we got the final clue. And with just the complete brain power of all four of us, we were able to break that last clue and find the location, which was awesome. So I want to congratulate the rest of the team first ride. That was a big win. Uh, but I also won a second treasure hunt this week as well. Uh, this one, me and Nick have been working on for quite a while. In fact, for over almost a year and a half, nearly two years. It's called It's in Los Angeles. This one had a little bit of controversy, which I won't go into right now. Uh, but basically, me, Nick, and Jennifer Rao, uh, I'm sorry if I didn't pronounce that right, uh, we were the winners of that hunt this week. It was announced, uh, finally. And basically, very simple on that one, it was a book which me and Nick took forever to decipher. Once we did decipher, it took you to a park, Irvine Regional Park in California, Jen was our boots on the ground for that one. She must have gone over 20 times to the park looking for the proxy key. Uh, finally, she wasn't able to find it, so we contacted the creator, and uh, he went and checked, and yes, he confirmed it wasn't there. And we were declared the winners, which was awesome as well. So two big wins for, for me, Nick, and uh, the rest of the teams that we work with, Ashley Ann, Brody Leak, and uh, Jennifer Rao. So uh, there's so many more people that I can mention, uh, but I'm not going to do that right now. Check out our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages for more shout-outs. Now, on to the story. If you have ever read or researched about almost any treasure, or even look for some yourself, you'll know that more often than not, treasure is not lost because someone chooses to bury or hide it, but is often lost because of a series of uncontrollable events and circumstances. The story of King John's lost treasure is certainly no exception. Let's start with some background, as usual, that will help you to understand the story better. 
And uh, to do that, I am uh, going to introduce you to bad King John, as history has dubbed him. King John ruled Great Britain from 1199 until his death in 1216. Not a very long time when, uh, compared to others of the time, such as his father, Henry II, who ruled for 34 years and 200 days, but more than his famous brother, Richard I, or, as you might know him, Richard the Lionheart, who ruled for only 11 years and 216 days. However, he certainly left a huge mark on English history. John was never meant to be the king. He was the youngest son. He had two older brothers who were in line for the crown ahead of him. Uh, of the earlier mentioned King Henry II and Eleanor of Aquitaine. And because of this, he was often called, behind his back of course, John Lackland, because he had no land or property of his own. His father was fond of his younger son, however, and made him Lord of Ireland in 1177. And this is what started the ball rolling for John. He wasn't a very good Lord, and he did not care for his lands or its people. But with, but this slowly, uh, with this grant of land, he slowly started to accumulate more and more land in both England as well as on the European continent. Uh, going a little bit further than that, in 1173, John's two older brothers rose in revolt against their father, backed by their mother Eleanor, in a short rebellion that lasted from 1173 to 1174. This, uh, as I mentioned before, only helped make John and Henry closer, and more lands were given to John, and in 1185, John made his first visit to Ireland, along with over 300 knights and his staff. John famously made fun of the Irish rulers because of their long beards, and it did not make too many allies, and slowly he started to lose some of the lands back to the Irish, when finally John, he gave up and returned back to England. In 1186, John's oldest brother, uh, Geoffrey, or in some places it's notated as Goffrey, uh, I'm not sure which one to pronounce it as, but I'm going to use Geoffrey, first in line to become the king when Henry died. He died himself while competing in a tournament, uh, basically a jousting tournament. Geoffrey did have a son named Arthur who was not old enough yet to become the king. Richard, however, continued to fight against his father, going as far as to align himself with Philip II of France, and in 1189, peace was made and Richard was promised the throne after Henry died. At first, John remained loyal to his father, but when he determined that it was a losing side, he quickly changed his loyalties to Richard. Not long after the peace was signed, Henry died. Richard became the king in 1189. However, he spent most of his time away fighting in the Crusades and on the European continent. In fact, during the entire reign as king, he only spent a total of nine months in England. Richard gave more lands and titles to John with the aim to buy his loyalty and ensure that he would not revolt while Richard was away. But this, did, but this did not seem to work, and John tried multiple times to take the throne by force, eventually surrendering to Richard's troops and losing all his lands except his hated Ireland. In 1199, Richard was also killed while away in France, while fighting yet another war. And for a while, it looked like Geoffrey's young son, the aforementioned Arthur, might inherit the throne. However, John was able to acquire a large army and was proclaimed the King of England. Now, most of you, if not every one of you, has heard of Robin Hood, the legend of Nottingham Forest. Maybe you've seen the movies or read some of the books. If you have, you know John is not portrayed in a very favorable light. Oh, the richest plum of them all, Notting. <laughs> There, that, I believe, does it. This crown gives me a feeling of power! Power! Forgive me a cruel chuckle. <laughs> power. 
That little soundbite was uh, Prince John, as he was known in the film, or King John, from the Disney 1973 cartoon movie Robin Hood. The voice of King John was the famous Peter, uh, actor Peter Usenoff, who is most famous for portraying the Belgian sleuth Hercule Poirot in many of his films. Let's now skip forward to 1205, and it's here that John decides to pick a fight with the most powerful priest in the world, Pope Innocent III in Rome, and ends up getting himself and his country excommunicated. The dispute was over the Archbishop of, of Canterbury, or more specifically, the death of the Archbishop Herbert Walter. John wanted his old man, his own man, to fill the now vacant post. However, the church claimed the right to appoint their own choice. This dispute was not settled until 1213. Now, there are a lot of interesting articles that I found, many of which I'll include in the show notes, uh, that offer either a myth or a legend about this time. It is thought that John was so fed up with the church and the Pope that he attempted to contact the leaders of the country of Morocco with the wish to become a Muslim, bringing the country over with him. Now, I could not find any primary sources to verify this. If it's certainly interesting, sure, if it's true, that's for sure. John John had only just made friends with the Pope when another problem arose, this time in his own backyard. So now it's time to talk about Civil War and the Magna Carta. The Magna Carta originated originated as an unsuccessful attempt to achieve peace between the Royalist and Rebel factions in 1215, as part of the events leading to the outbreak of the First Barons' War. Although the kingdom had a robust administrative system, the nature of the government under the Angevian monarchs was ill-defined and uncertain. John and his predecessors had ruled using the principle of vis et volatis, or force and will, taking executive and sometimes arbitrary decisions, often justified on the basis that a king was above the law. John had most John had lost most of his ancestral lands in, in France to King Philip II in 1204, and had struggled to regain them for many years, raising extensive taxes on the barons to accumulate money to fight a war which ended an expensive failure in 1214. Following the defeat of his allies at the Battle of Bovines, John had to sue for peace and pay compensation. John was already personally unpopular with many of the barons, many of who owned money to the ground, and little trust existed between the two sides. A triumph would have strengthened his position, but in the face of his defeat, within a few months after his return from France, John found that rebel barons in the north and east of England were organizing resistance to his rule. The rebels took an oath that they would stand fast for the liberty of the church and the realm, demanded the king confirm the Charter of Liberties that had been declared by King Henry I in the previous century, and which was perceived by the barons to protect their rights. The rebel leadership was unimpressed by the standards of the time, even disreputable, but were united by their hatred of John. John, sorry, Robert Fitzwalter, later elected to be the leader of the rebel barons, claimed publicly that John had attempted to rape his daughter and was implicated in a plot to assassinate John in 1212. John held a council in London in January 2015 to discuss the potential reforms and sponsored discussions in Oxford between his agents and the rebels during that spring. Both sides appealed to Pope Innocent III for assistance in the dispute. During the negotiations, the rebellious barons produced an initial document which historians have termed the Unknown Charter of Liberties, which drew on Henry I's Charter of Liberties for much of its language. Seven articles from that document later appeared in the Articles of the Barons and the subsequent Charter. It was John's hope that that the Pope would give him valuable legal and moral support, and accordingly John played for time. 
the king had declared himself to be a papal vassal in 1213 and correctly believed that he could count on the Pope for help. John also began recruiting mercenary forces from France, although some were later sent back to avoid giving the impression that the king was escalating the conflict. In a further move to shore up his support, John took an oath to become a crusader, a move which gave him additional political protection under church law, even though many felt the promise was insincere. Letters backing John arrived from the Pope in April, but by then the rebel barons had organized into a military faction. They congregated at Northampton in May and renounced their feudal ties to John, marching on London, Lincoln and Exeter. John's effort to appear moderate and conciliatory had been largely successful, but once the rebels held London, they attracted a fresh wave of defectors from the royalists. The king offered to submit the problem to a committee of arbitration with the Pope as the supreme arbiter, but this was not attractive to the rebels. Stephen Langton, the Archbishop of Canterbury, had been working with the rebel barons on their demands, and after the suggestion of papal arbitration failed, John instructed Langdon to organize peace talks. John met the rebel leaders at Runningmead, a water meadow on the south bank of the River Thames, on the 10th of June, 1215. Runningmead was a traditional place for assemblies, but it had also located on neutral ground between the royal fortress of Windsor Castle and the rebel base at Staines, and offered both sides the security of a rendezvous where they were unlikely to find themselves at a military disadvantage. Here, the rebels presented John with their draft, demands for reform, the Articles of the Barons. Stephen Langton's pragmatic efforts at mediation over the next 10 days turned these incomplete demands into a charter, capturing the proposed peace agreement. A few years later, this agreement was was renamed the Magna Carta, meaning Great Charter. By June 15, general agreement had been made on a text, and on June 19, the rebels renewed their oaths of loyalty to the John, and copies of the charter were formally issued. Although, as the historian David Carpenter has noted, the Charter wasted no time on political theory, it went beyond simply addressing the individual baronial complaints and formed a wider proposal for political reform. It promised the protection of church rights, protection from illegal imprisonment, access to swift justice, and most importantly, limitations on taxation and other feudal payments to the Crown, with certain forms of feudal taxation requiring baronial consent. So that's a little bit of information about the Magna Carta. There's a lot more, so I'm going to put some links into the show notes so that you can actually read up on that as much as you want to as well. But this podcast is all about treasure, not politics. So let me move on to the most important part of the story, the treasure. The story of King John's treasure has multiple theories, and I'll do my best to explain most of them here. According to most sources, the story starts on October 9, 1216, when King John was traveling with his court and baggage train from Lincolnshire to Bishop's Lynn, now known as King's Lynn, which is in Norfolk. During the day, John began to feel sick, and so it was decided that he should return to Lincolnshire. On October 12, John and the baggage train attempted to cross the Wash, which is a large bay that separates East Anglia and Lincolnshire. Now, I do want to give you a little bit of information about the Wash. Uh, Obviously, it's in the name of the title of this podcast. So what is the Wash? Because it's just as important character as John is. The Wash is a large, square-mouthed bay that included the River Oust on the east coast of England. It is actually one of the largest rivers in the United Kingdom. The England area of the Wash is flat, low-lying, and very marshy, so much so that it's called the Fens. Over the many hundred years, the area of the Wash has drastically changed, and the coastline has actually changed due to the deposits of sediments. So now that the towns like Kings Lynn that I just mentioned before are actually several kilometres inland and no longer on the coast, So this will make more sense in just a few moments when I get to the rest of the story. So King John made his crossing of the Wash at the town of Wisbeck, 
And it was here he crossed the Wellstream, which was one of the other many rivers that ran into the wash. To save time, his baggage train was crossing at a different place, closer to the coast, an area of mudflats and marshes, and was only able to be crossed at low tide. Even then, it was still extremely dangerous because of the hidden channels, quicksand, and of course, that unpredictable tide. The returning tide was exactly what caught the baggage train. They were surprised by the tide, and the complete train was lost, including the complete royal treasures. John now, minus his treasure and baggage train, made it only as far as Newark, where on October 18th, he died of dysentery. So pretty cool story, huh? A treasure of unimaginable wealth buried by the rising tide and missing for over 800 years. But is it true? Is King John's treasure still undiscovered in a field someplace? Well, not exactly. Historians obviously disagree with many details of this story. So let's check off a couple of different theories and let's get down to details. So theory number one, well, more than a theory, I just want to give you some more information. What exactly was the treasure that was lost? So Roger D. Wendover wrote in Flores Historium, or Flowers of History, in 1230, that treasures, precious vessels, and all other things which he, King John, cherished with special care were included in the treasure. Another historian, Ralph of Cogshall, in Chronicon Anglicum, states his chapel with its relics and diverse household effects. So the question lies, is the treasure just a bunch of holy relics and bone combs? What about mirrors and where's the gold? Well, one one website I found, uh, www.britainexplorer.com, states that the treasure contained the crown jewels, gold goblets, silver plate, a golden wand with a dove, gold coins, and the sword of Tristram, an Arthurian relic. However, no one seems to have, none of this has ever actually been confirmed. King John was known, however, to love collecting treasure. Number two, was John traveling with the treasure or separately? Now, most sources state that they were traveling separately. As I mentioned earlier in the story, John was not feeling well and being less encumbered, he could travel long distances faster and so could afford to take the long way around the wash. The baggage train, however, looking to make up time, was forced to cross directly across the wash. In Ian Wilson's book, Undiscovered, he has a different theory that I personally feel makes a little bit more of a sense. He believes that John was traveling with his baggage train and his treasure when it was lost. John was, after all, the sort of man who would never let his wealth leave his sight, and he claims that John barely escaped from the rising tide with his life when the treasure was lost. Number three. So where exactly is the treasure now? Well, I talked earlier about the wash and how over the past 800 years the coast is now several kilometers further out than it once was, and that a lot of the land has since been drained and reclaimed, having been made into farmland. This is a good thing if you're a treasure hunter looking for the treasure because the search area is now solid ground. However, scientists predict that over 30 feet or 10 meters of silt and earth may cover the treasure after all of these years, making it deeper than any standard metal detector could find. So more advanced equipment like ground penetrating radar would be needed if you were searching. So put that on your list. Not a shred of cloth, a splinter of wood, or a fragment of gold has ever been so has ever been found. So be prepared for some seriously hard work if you want to go dig that up. Number four, does the treasure really exist? Well, I'm going to leave this one up to you. There are some historians like Alan Wilson who state that the opinion that there has never been a treasure. 
Wilson also believes that from some sources he found that King John was actually murdered by the Pope and that his treasure was not lost, but was instead stole, sold to pay off all, all of John's debts. So like any treasure story, until it's actually been found, who is to say which version's correct? True, false, I'm going to leave that up to you to dig up. Though since the UK and the rest of the world is currently on lockdown because of COVID, this might, treasure might be underground for a few more years yet to come. So that's the end of the story of King John's lost treasure in the wash. Uh, definitely, I love this story. I want to do this one for a while now. So I'm glad I got a chance to record it now. I did want to give you a very special Code Bar cocktail. This one, I uh, well, it actually is something that I borrowed from the website www.cocktailsandshots.com. It's called the Magna Carta Cocktail. And it rep- represents the June 15, 2015 date when the Magna Carta was agreed to uh, by King John and the Barons. I could not come up with a better cocktail myself, and this one was definitely something that uh, I think I'm going to enjoy drinking. Uh, it's definitely going to be on the Code Bar menu going forward. So let me give you some ingredients. There's one ounce of triple sec, two ounces of tequila, your choice, and then you top it with champagne. So here's a brief recipe. Start by rubbing the rim of a wine glass with lime juice and dip the glass into stir in the tequila and triple sec over ice in a separate mixing glass then strain into the prepared glass top with champagne and a lime wheel on the glass's edge so now we've come to the end of this show for all the information that doesn't make it into the podcast as well as the links that i mentioned please visit the show notes and also please don't forget to like us on facebook twitter and instagram all with the handle at code bar live Please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast, and please help the podcast grow by leaving a rating and review, especially on the big one, Apple Podcasts. I will be back in two weeks with another original show, this one on the code monument Cryptos that has only been partially deciphered and sits in front of CIA headquarters in Langley, Virginia. Now, until next time, everyone, keep digging.